The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight we'll continue with this uh, chapter in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart. The title of this particular chapter is The Mysterious Solution of Self. And uh, sometimes we think of this as maybe the last step in practice where we have some understanding what somebody would mean by the mysterious solution itself. But actually, it's like so much of this path that the Buddha laid out. Ends and means are really the same thing. So to practice going beyond the mysterious solution of self or to go beyond the mysterious illusion of self, we have to practice that. And in fact, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness practice, one of the more famous talks the Buddha gave, right at the beginning, he's defining mindfulness. He says something like, practitioners in regard to the body, in regard to feeling, and mind and mind states, the skillfulness and unskillfulness of the mind, a, practice, a practitioner abides contemplating this experience, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontentment in regards to the world. Or that last sentence could be free from or not confused by attraction and repulsion in regards to the world. So. Even in this practice we were doing tonight, being mindful of the body, or being more specifically mindful of the breath in the body, even that requires, in a sense, that we go beyond the sense of self. And I'm sure you notice when you're being mindful, practicing mindfulness of the body, or mindfulness of the breath, how the mind, the habit mind, keeps imposing ideas about the breath, or pictures of the breath, images of the breath, or the body. But that's different than the sensation. In all of our images, you know, whatever image you have about the breath or whatever idea you have about the breath, that's part of some kind of self-centered drama. I mean, it may be very subtle, may not stand out. But basically, it's some idea that this is my breath that I'm watching. My breath is good. My breath is bad. My breath is subtle. Can't find my breath or the same with the body. But when you have those moments, and maybe a few moments together, where you're just aware of the sensation of the breath, or just aware of the sensations of the body in that direct, open, and relaxed way, where there's no sense of self there. It's like when, we, when you feel your body, you know, close your eyes for a moment, feel your body sitting here. You know, is there anything male or female about your body? Or, like I'm 52 years old, is there anything about this direct experience of sensation that is I'm blank years old? Or I had a good day or a bad day? See, sensations, the present moment of experience of sensation is outside of the story we have about our life, who we are, who, what we're not. 
So, in a way, there's like two parallel universes. We've got the stream of our thoughts about things, the story we have about our life, which includes, of course, all of our stories about who we think you guys are or who I think you guys are, what's good, what's wrong with the world. So we have this conglomeration of stories, thoughts, churning along, and mostly we take that to be who and what we are. And then every once in a while when we get encouraged to be mindful, to be just directly aware of sensation, of sound, thought is thought, or as the Buddha says here, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontentment in regards to the world. So what that means, being free from desire and discontentment, that means the mind isn't confused by what it's seen. So, for example, if I'm feeling the breath or I'm feeling the body and it's unpleasant, the unpleasantness of it confuses the mind. And so I start to think about what's wrong with my breath. But why can't the sensations just be what they are, pleasant or unpleasant, subtle or gross, hard or soft? So when the mind sort of gets confused, it feels obliged to think about, to proliferate around the experience. So this is the very first step in mindfulness. We can't, in a sense, have a moment of mindfulness unless we're able to go beyond that experience we're being mindful of in terms of the world. So to be mindful of a sound means to hear the sound without being confused by our thoughts of that sound which puts the sound in the context of our world, of this and that, good and bad, me and you. So what is it to hear the sound of a bird, the sound of traffic, or to feel the sensations of sitting or the sensations of breathing without being confused by the thoughts, that parallel universe of concepts and thoughts about that, but just the experience in and of itself, the sensations in and of itself. So in a way, a moment of being mindful with the body is a moment of stepping outside of the sense of self. We can't actually be mindful of the body and have a sense, this is my body I'm feeling. To have that thought, this is my body I'm feeling, is to be thinking. It's not to be aware of the body. If there's any awareness, it would be an awareness of the thought. Oh, having the thought, I'm feeling my body. But that's mind, if you're mindful of that thought, then that's mindfulness of thinking, not mindfulness of the body. If we're really directly present with a sound, with a sight, with sensation, we're not confused by thoughts. Like even visually now, we're all seeing something if our eyes are open. Of course, we're actually seeing if our eyes are closed too, right? You can see darkness or whatever. So we're seeing... Now, imagine or practice seeing without being confused by the thoughts that are arising conditioned by what we're seeing. You know, we see something attractive or interesting or unattractive. We have certain feelings and thoughts, mind states, arising in conjunction with the direct visual experience. 
But can we be aware of the direct visual experience of shape and color, form, without being confused by the content? See, we're not afraid. It's not that the content is bad or evil. The idea of mindfulness is not to be confused by experience. We start out with the easy experiences, you know, tactile experiences, sounds. And then when we get good at that, you can work with sights. And then when you get really good with sights and smells and tastes, then you can practice being mindful of thoughts, like to be able to allow a thought to come and go in the mind or an emotion to come and go in the mind without feeling that it's anything more than a thought coming and going in the mind. You know you're attached or identified with a thought when you feel compelled to think about that thought. You have a thought, and then it, it feels very weird not to have a thought about that thought. But just to allow a thought to come and go, that's a sign that there's real mindfulness of thinking. When a thought can arise, fully formed, no fear, no resistance, no judgment like, I should be thinking, which of course is a thought. None of that, just a thought, and then it's gone. And then maybe another thought, and then it's gone. Just like the same with the sound. So one of the qualities of mindfulness, especially initially, is just to be able to see something in and of itself. This first instruction, or part of this first set of instructions from the Buddha, when he first started talking about what mindfulness is, diligent, meaning we're really showing up in a continuous way, clearly knowing, we're not adding anything to the knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontentment, right? free from any reactivity. So the sound is just the sound, the sight is just the sight, the thought is just the thought, the sensation is just the sensation. Can we really get a sense of what the Buddha means you know, with the term anatta, the not-self or the impersonal nature of this kind of direct, truthful experiencing. When we're experiencing in this way, we finally begin to understand what it means to be free of self. Because mostly we're living inside of our, the interpretations we have of our experience. This is a passage from Bhante Gunaratana's book, Mindfulness in Plain English, a nice book about the practice. Bhante Gunaratana is a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk. He's been in the States now for a long time. He has a practice center and monastery out in West Virginia, not too far from Washington, D.C., called Bhavana Society. Anyway, and in, the, in this book, Mindfulness in Plain English, he says, our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. <clears throat> we tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive, and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects. Then we react to those mental objects in programmed, habitual ways. So most, you know, right now, in this moment, like every moment, it's truly an amazing display of experience. You know, through the five physical senses and then the mind thinking, this is the sum total of reality, right? 
Reality consists of knowing sounds and sights and smells and tastes and touches and knowing thoughts. In fact, to be truthful, we can't say that reality is anything more than knowing these six things, right? And the sense that, well, wait a minute, it's a lot more than just knowing those six things, that's a thought being known. You know, the sense that, no, there's this whole external reality. I'm not saying there isn't an external reality. I'm just saying that this is our experience. We're knowing thoughts, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. And this experience is pretty amazing when, in a sense, we get out of the way. Just in, just in an ordinary, ordinary moment sitting at Common Ground, just the diversity of tactile experiences right now, just the diversity of sensation in the body is pretty amazing. I mean, that's like uh, Bant, uh, Bhante Gunaratna says, we shut off, we ignore not, probably a lot more than 99% of the present moment reality, like how much of your body you're actually sensitive to, awake to right now. How much of the auditory experience are we awake to right now, or the visual experience? How much are we aware of mind states and thoughts? So as human beings and, you know, caught in habit, we've become quite dependent, maybe even quite addicted to being grounded in something that appears substantial. And what that is, really, is our thoughts about things. Because our thoughts about things can give our reality some depth and substance. Like we have the thought of time. You know, when I was young, later when I'll be really old. We have thoughts of good and bad. We have thoughts of me and you. It's like creates all this dimensionality to our experience. And it sort of solidifies it. You know, I'm this. I'm a man. I do this for a living. I'm this way. You're that way. So we've got these ideas that we repeat, these stories we repeat to ourselves. And because we can repeat the same thought over and over again, it creates a sense of stability or solidness or permanence in experience. But the more we're mindful and we're aware that thoughts are just thoughts, they come and go. Sounds are just sounds, they come and go. Sensations are sensations, they come and go. Sights and tastes and smells, they also just come and go. We start, one of the unavoidable results of being more and more mindful is we learn to happily abide in a world that's quite fluid. Because it's not that we don't have thoughts about things anymore. Of course, they'll continue on. But we're not so confused by our thoughts about things. So a thought about something like, this world is going to hell. You know, that thought can arise and go, but the mind won't feel so compelled to think about that thought, to solidify or congeal around it through the process of proliferation. It could just be you know, a random opinion arising in the mind and then passing from the mind. Some of our thoughts will be terrible, despicable. Some of them will be profound and beautiful. But the mind doesn't need to get tight about the thoughts that come and go. Some thoughts 
will feel appropriate to bring into the world and we'll speak it out loud to whoever we're with. Some thoughts won't feel so appropriate to do anything with and we won't bring them into action in any way. He goes on and he gives the example of, uh, you know, hearing a dog at night. You know, you're there lying in bed, this amazing diversity of sensation, amazing diversity of sight and sound, thought, and a dog bite barks, you know, off in the distance. And your mind reacts to it one way or another. You know, maybe you like it. Maybe it's a dog you know and makes you happy, makes you feel safe that that dog's there. Maybe it's a dog that's been driving you crazy. And maybe you have certain opinions about the owner of the dog. And on and on like that. But one way or another, the mind's tendency is to sort of grab a hold of it. And in grabbing a hold of that thought, oh, that dog. Because, you know, once we grab a hold of it, it sounds, it feels, or looks, like that thought just continues. It's just there. But no thought lasts more than an instant. We have to keep thinking that thought over and over and over and over again. That's what gives it its seeming solidity or permanence. So there we are thinking about the dog and we're completely oblivious to everything else. That's what he means about shutting off everything else. And then we react to the thought about the dog in programmed ways, in habitual ways. If we like the dog, we think one way. If we don't like the dog, we think another way. He says, there's that dog again. He's always barking at night. What a nuisance to me. Every night he's a real bother. Somebody should do something. Maybe I should call a cop. No, a dog catcher. I'll call the pound. No, maybe I'll just write a really nasty letter to the guy who owns the dog. No, too much trouble. I'll just get an earplug. Now, the interesting thing is, why do we do that? We, we have to admit, we, on some unconscious level, we like the solidity. We like the solidity that that self-centered drama gives us. Why do we keep picking up self-centered dramas? Why do we immediately take something from the present moment and, in a sense, transform it into a mental object? Like uh, Bhante Ratna says, a discrete mental object, right, that we can react to. We're not content to let things be quite open, alive with change. That's really the direction we're moving. That's the flavor of freedom. It's participating in this very fluid, ephemeral world of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts, emotions, but without adding any friction to it, without the mind congealing in any way. So when we sit down and we practice mindfulness, that's really what we're doing. We're practicing non-self. I mean, we wouldn't say that because we'd end up thinking about it if we did. <laughs> but that's really what's happening, to be with the breath for a few seconds with some continuity means dropping notions, all notions. You can't really be present with anything without dropping all of your notions about everything else, including the object you're paying attention to. It's incongruous to be identified, attached to a thought, then the only thing we could see with mindfulness in that moment is the attachment to the thought. But to be present without attachment 
means not to be confused by thoughts, not to be entrapped by them. He goes on and he explains this in the same chapter. He says, from a Buddhist perspective, we humans have a backward view of life. We look at what is actually the cause of suffering and see it as happiness. Right? Because the cause of suffering is exactly that, is when we conceptualize what's happening in our experience, turn it into a thought, and then react to that thought with more thoughts. We think this is happiness, to get involved through the process of thinking and reacting to our thoughts. We, in a sense, get some juice from this. You know, we get hot and bothered by this kind of intensity. But it's actually suffering. It cuts us off from life. It's, it becomes sort of uh, rigid, brittle, and heavy, and like uh, dead. <laughs> well, the Buddha has a very provocative statement that is in the Dhammapada where he says, uh, you know, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, to freedom. And the absence of mindfulness, the absence of heedfulness, it's as if you're already dead. You know, when we're not present, when we're not in that place where things are alive and we're caught in our thoughts, the Buddha likens that to the experience of being dead, being trapped by opinions, by desires, by fears, caught in that way is the experience of death, in the sense of being cut off from life. He goes on, he says, the cause of suffering is that desire aversion syndrome, which we spoke of earlier. Up pops a perception, it could be anything, a beautiful girl, a handsome guy, a speedboat, a thug with a gun, a truck bearing down on you, anything. Whatever it is, the very next thing we do is to react to the stimulus with a feeling about it, right? And with the feeling, then we react with craving and aversion. Triggers that craving and aversion. And he goes on at the end of the section, says, Vipassana meditation teaches us how to scrutinize our own perceptual process with great precision. We learn to watch the arising of a thought and perception with a feeling of serene dis, uh, detachment. We learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. Right? It's like we're starving our reactive habits through the process of non-identification, non-attachment. We're not angry at our reactive patterns. We're not trying to repress them. We're just not feeding them by getting identified. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of the truck. But we don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought produces a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings with it the bliss of emancipation from obsessions. Because of these advantages, Buddhism views this way of looking at things as the correct view of life. And Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are. So it's not you know, just uh, wishful thinking to say a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. 
Because when we're mindful, we're stepping outside of these perceptual distortions that come when we get attached to ideas, get attached to thoughts, identified with them. And then it's like the only thing that matters at that point is to maintain the intensity of that congealing, of that identification. So, so much of practice is getting a sense that when we are identified or attached to anything, a thought, a sensation, it feels like this. And when we're mindful, it feels differently. It feels open and fluid. And we really begin to associate all experience in terms of either being skillful, a sense of being open, fluid, alive, and unskillful, experiencing in a way that leads to the experience of constriction and weight, tightness, heaviness. And that's it. So in this sense, you know, in, in a Buddhist sense, skillfulness, unskillfulness, doesn't have to do with some you know, outside moral standard. It's direct. You know, when we're doing something unskillful like, you know, planning revenge, the actual experience of our mind in that moment tells us it's unskillful. We don't need somebody else to tell us it's unskillful. If we just pay attention to what it feels like to be planning revenge, it's clear in the moment this, the, that feeling of tightness. Because, of course, when we're planning revenge, it's coming out of a very specific thought. You know, somebody did something bad to me and I'm going to get evil. Uh, even. <laughs> I'll be evil getting even. <laughs> so the mind is, in a sense, in a very direct sense, gripping that thought and then reacting to it with more thoughts. And that experience itself is suffering, leads to suffering. And then in the next moment when we realize, oh, that's just a thought. That's just anger. Then we're beginning, when we're aware that it's just anger, we're aware that it's just a thought, as we're moving more into the mode of mindfulness, then we're seeing that thoughts are coming and going. That that thought of revenge comes and it goes. And for that anger to perpetuate itself, it needs another thought. It means that there has to be an intention to think it again. But if we're feeling, seeing directly that it's heavy, like a red-hot ball, we're not going to think it again. Nobody is consciously insane. We're unconsciously insane. You know, it's because we're not aware that we get involved in these obsessive patterns. But when we're conscious, when we're present, sensitive, the mind drops it. It doesn't even need to be somebody dropping it. It isn't like Mark thinks, oh, I shouldn't be doing that, sort of that inner parent. It's none of that. It's not even that complicated. The mind just abandons what's hot, what's heavy, what's unnecessary. It just depends on clear seeing. This is the amazing thing. And this is another thing that reinforces this sense of non-self. In this chapter in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, each chapter, as some of you know, he has a, a principle coming out of the teachings of the Buddha. So in this chapter, on the mysterious illusion of self, the principle says, our ideas of self are created by identification. The less we cling to ideas of self, the freer and happier we will be. 
The less we cling to ideas of self, the freer and happier we will be. So the less we cling to ideas of self, there are two ways to do that, to not cling to ideas, ideas of self. Basically, almost, not all, but almost all of our thinking that has at its root the sort of motivation for that thinking is some self-centered drama. Not all thinking. Like the thought, oh, that's just a thought. That thought doesn't necessarily have self-centeredness behind it. But most of our thoughts, especially thoughts that have a head of steam, one thought leading to another, generally we can see, if we look, aversion or greed behind it. And where does greed and aversion come from? Well, it has to come from a sense of self. You need a self to be afraid or to be angry. You need a self to be needy or greedy. It just doesn't happen without that view, that sense of separation. So there's really two ways to uh, let go of clinging to these views, to the the view of self or to self-centeredness. One is just to quiet the mind down. In a way, concentration or just the continuity of mindfulness, just being mindful of walking, mindful of cross-country skiing, mindful of knitting, mindful of chopping vegetables, mindfulness of breathing in and out. When we pour our heart into some activity, it doesn't matter what it is, but we really pour our heart, mind, body into that activity, do something completely, fully, so fully that there's, in a sense, no space in the mind to conceptualize what's going on and to turn that wholehearted activity into some self-centered activity. So this is one way you can directly experience some freedom from the weight of self-centeredness. Just practice in different ways in your life, and you might as well start with the activities you like and, of course, activities that aren't so charged, like your identity isn't so wrapped up in it, like simple hobbies or simple daily body care activities, brushing your teeth, putting your clothes on, walking from your car to your office, breathing in, breathing out, things like that. Or even you can experiment with music that isn't so charged, that isn't kind of evoking a lot of personal images in your mind. And then practice doing it 100%, giving your mind, body, heart to the experiencing, to the activity completely, not holding back. And see, notice what that's like as you approach 100% commitment to that activity. Notice the arising of freedom in that 100% commitment, that 100% surrendering into the activity. And then this is such a powerful way to practice. Then as you start to conceptualize, have thoughts, opinions, reactions to what's going on, judgments, then that freedom, that ease that you had touched in a moment begins to dissipate, fall away. And you become an ordinary suffering human being again, you know, as opposed to an extraordinary free human being, and back and forth. And we can learn so much about life just in this movement. And of course, this is the essence. So much of 
sitting, daily sitting practice is this. There we are with the breath, but we're not really with the breath. We're at like 10% commitment, right? 90% we're interested in our opinions, like this is a stupid thing to be spending my time on, or our fantasies, you know, and every once in a while, because it would feel stupid to be doing this practice without ever paying attention to the breath. Every once in a while, we come back and we're aware, okay, yeah, if the breath is still there, fine. And then we're off again. That's called a waste of time. But it has one advantage, which is it's really unpleasant to be sitting there pretending to meditate. And so it, it can shock us into saying, hey, if I'm going to do this, let me really do it. Let's see if there's really something here or not. So the real benefit of meditation comes when we approach the 70, 80, 90 percent commitment. We're really, we've got enough faith, either based because somebody else told us it's really good, or from our own experience, that, hey, if I'm going to sit for a half an hour, I'm going to really practice turning toward whatever, either my, my sort of chosen object of meditation, like the breath, or whatever's predominant in that moment. But whatever it is, whether I'm with my regular anchor or with some other object that's arisen in the experience, like a fly crawling on our skin or just feeling cold, or I'm going to do it 100%. I'm going to open this mind and heart to this experience 100%. I'm going to be interested. I'm going to be relaxed and surrendered. I'm going to allow it to express itself. I'm going to go beyond any kind of control, any kind of fear, any kind of manipulation, and just allow this breath or this object to express its nature. So that's at the heart of success for practice, is this commitment. And we call it the development of samadhi. Samadhi, or what's badly translated as concentration, is the full commitment to the present moment. It's the, uni the mind is unified, is, has been gathered around this present moment knowing of the breath or the knowing of whatever we're knowing. And again, the particular object is less important than that full unification as opposed to a dissipated or scattered mind, you know, a distracted mind, the 50%, 40%, 30% commitment mind, or you know, zero commitment mind. So that's one way. Now there's another way to get freedom from self. And that's right here in the midst with ordinary concentration. And when we're you know, just with our ordinary, not an altered state of consciousness, when we have strong samadhi, strong concentration, it is an altered state. Being in that full commitment with experience is an altered state. Susan uh, brought me, tracked down this uh, chapter in a book by Bill Russell, uh, where he talks about his years as a, some of you remember him as a great, one of the great uh, basketball players in the late 60s and 70s on the Celtics team. And uh, he wrote in one, I guess his autobiography, um, just about coming into that zone in certain games, not a, not a common experience, but something that happened enough times that it really stood out, where his game in playing, it kind of uh, went beyond notions of me winning, me being a great basketball player, me being embarrassed by 
being burnt by the other guy, into this freedom, the freedom of the mind not conceptualizing what's going on, but just being completely 100% in the activity of the moment. So even something as complicated as playing professional basketball, that means we could probably do our life this way if we trained enough. Now, but that, those, those are more moments of altered consciousness. I mean, that's not how Bill Russell lived most of his life. That were just moments when he was relaxed enough and the conditions came together and, you know, the mind, the conscious mind just sort of shifted into the state of mindful presence. But the more we're there and the more we understand that experience, there's another thing that happens which we call insight. It's different than samadhi, but it's related. Samadhi increases the probability of insight. And what insight does is it transforms our understanding of experience. So then now with, not a, with an ordinary state of consciousness, now we don't have this sort of powerful concentration. And, we're just, and so normal experience triggers us in normal ways. Somebody says something and it hurts our feelings and we feel the emotional pain of that. Or you know, somebody gives us a hug and it feels good. You know, and we, we feel that warmth or whatever. So we're experiencing life as a normal human being, except now, because of insight, all of the different things that arise, the normal emotions that arise in us, we're not confused by them. So we may feel shame, but the mind understands, oh, it's just shame. Or we might feel pride, but the mind doesn't take the experience of pride personally. Anger, greed, any emotion. So. This, is, uh, this kind of insight gives us an immunity to reactivity. Being in the zone, having strong concentration, gives us temporary immunity. Developing greater, deeper, and deeper insight gives us permanent immunity. Because it's not some special state of consciousness that allows us not to get caught up. It's more like down into the bones the heart, mind, body understands what experience is, that it's just stuff coming and going. As one teacher calls it, empty phenomena rolling on. But it can't be a pretend thing, like we want that to be true, especially when things are difficult. Oh, it's just empty phenomena rolling on. It has to be a direct understanding. The mind really understands we're not living this life from the point of view of our personal story. It's a different view. The life is coming out of a different view or a different understanding. That includes everything. It isn't an exclusive view. The view doesn't have a center to it. Right now, right, we live our life with a view that has a very specific sense of center. You know, this life is happening to me, you know, and I guess I guess your life is happening to you, but what I really feel and know, this life is happening to me. But the more we practice, we have moments of that samadhi, the more we examine our life in this careful way, the more we see that that center isn't what we imagine it to be. It becomes more fluid, less fixed, and the more we begin to have a more porous, fluid, transparent sense of center, and more and more, gradually, more and more, that sense of center 
evaporates, literally evaporates from our view. And we experience that sort of development of freedom. So we can have profound states of freedom when the concentration is really good and we're really 100% there and the sense of self is 100% not there because the attention is so clear and relaxed and present and we, ex- we get a sort of temporary freedom. And then the more experiences like that and the more reflection on the absence of a fixed center that we imagine is there, the more we examine that in our own experience and find that it's not as we assume it is, the more it just becomes a pervasive insight. And the view of self becomes more transparent, less noxious in our minds, less heavy. So I want to leave it here so we have a little time to hear from people. If you have your own experiences you'd like to share with the group, maybe your own experiences of feeling less burdened by that sense of center or sense of self, what that was like, times when it felt really strong, movement between the two, like from feeling really free to feeling really caught, or from feeling really caught to feeling really free, and of course, any questions that you might have. So what comes to mind? And please say your name if you speak up. Really, what's the difference between the true self and the no self in your mind? Yeah, yeah, and you know, remember that <clears throat> the yogic tradition in Buddhism interacted for <clears throat> a long time in India before Buddhism was wiped out <coughs> in like the 12th century or 11th century, whatever it was. <coughs> so the Yoga Sutras, you know, really. Uh, and it was a, you know, debate and sort of a wholesome debate in that culture was highly praised. So there was a lot of interaction. So I, I'm feeling my sense is that they're just different ways of talking about the same thing, even though they put each other down. You know, and certainly Buddhists think that whole idea of the Atman is sort of like blasphemy. But it, I don't, I don't see it that way. It's think of the the 
The Buddha didn't turn no self or the sort of the going beyond seeing things as impersonal and conditional. He didn't turn that into a positive word, into a noun, because people get identified with it. So when you use terms like true self, then we turn it into a concept and then we gravitate towards that concept. And the key is to the key to freedom is in the abandoning of what's extra in the mind. And the self-centeredness is extra. It's a burden. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't help us be a useful, successful human being in any field, you know, spiritual, commercial. It just isn't, doesn't work. So much of developing spiritually or socially or on any level is learning what needs to be abandoned. And so the Buddha really emphasized that more than um, acquiring something. But it's good to be inspired, you know. So I think that may be the issue. A lot of one of the shadows of especially Theravada Buddhism is like, well, what's inspiring in Theravada Buddhism? You know, how do we inspire ourselves to take the steps that we need to take? Or how do we inspire ourselves to come back and do it the next sit or to return to the breath or return to the present moment? And generally, you know, the inspiration comes from our direct experience of freedom, a sense of release and ease. And seeing how beautiful qualities like kindness and compassion and forgiveness and patience and wisdom and clarity, how they are naturally more available when we do the practice. So it's really the emphasis in Theravada Buddhism especially is really in terms of getting to know cause and effect. And basically observing directly in your own experience how when you relate in this way, you know, you move toward health. Things get tighter, heavier. And when you relate in this way or act in this way or practice in this way, things get lighter. And out of that lightness comes all of the beautiful qualities you've always wanted for yourself. But it isn't so much that I'm trying to get something. It's really more about abandoning self-centered pursuits and in exchange for mindfulness. That sort of simple, bare, clear, relaxed presence. That's our refuge. Everything else comes out of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts, experiences you'd like to share with the group? Yeah. the things that we tend to do in that moment when we realize we're, we're caught is we get identified with the story that I'm caught. See, that's not a, mo- a moment of mindfulness, although it appears that we're practicing when we think, oh my God, I'm caught. 
But we're not practicing them. We're identified, and basically the drama that we're in is, I'm bad because I've lost my mindfulness. So now I need to fix myself. But see, here's the trick about mindfulness. Mindfulness, with mindfulness, we never have to fix anything. Right? It's like we, we can exist on two levels. We can exist on one level, which is the conventional level, which is I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for fixing things. Otherwise, it's going to all go to hell. <laughs> and that's how we all live most of the time. <laughs> but with mindfulness, it's a real letting go. We're stepping out of the driver's seat and we're saying, you know, my experience has taught me that I'm not really in the driver's seat anyway. So I'm going to step back into the mode of simple, clear, loving, relaxed awareness. And I'm going to let the action to go right or left, to stop or go, I'm going to let it come out of that simple presence. But I'm not going to control what comes out of the simple presence. I'm putting my commitment 100% into simple presence. So Bill Russell wasn't thinking how to be a great basketball player. He was in a relaxed state of complete presence. And the great plays, the great moves, were coming out of that. He wasn't doing those great moves. They were coming out of that full presence. So you want to be a good mom, an amazing mom? You have a choice. You can really like, read all the books, try to remember the important points at the right times, you know, <laughs> try to read the signals just right, and, you know, and be really frustrated, and then you know, give up. You know, the kind of crash and burn, basically, is what we do. Or you can emphasize more and more that simple presence. So when you fail at being a mom, then the simple presence understands, oh, failing at being a mom feels like this. It's like this. So forgiveness is just embedded right there with that mindfulness. You don't have to think of the strategy, oh, I should be forgiving. It's already there just to understand that being a failure at motherhood is like this. Feels like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a deep habit, and you know we don't we we don't get a lot of support. What gets a lot of support is the reactivity. You know, and so you need we can surround ourselves by people who support this refuge in simple presence, as opposed to the refuge in control. I'm gonna control. I'm gonna through sheer will, I will make myself a good mom, I will make myself a good partner, I will make myself, you know, immortal, <laughs> or whatever we think. And, you know, we keep bumping up against the truth that we're not in control, because we're not in control of everything. I mean, how little are we in control of, you know, especially as a parent, or whatever, you know, people who work in big corporations. Yeah, Barclay. Um.
because there's a part of us that's really enjoying it, even when it's utter hell, because that other hell is happening to us, to I, and, and it's validating. It's like, it's so strong that it takes less mental energy. So it, it, it takes all of our mental energy, but it, it's so overpowering that it supports us almost like it seems on its own. And when something terrible is happening, and something is really looking us really dramatically, and you know you're caught. I mean, there's that's a level of mindfulness that you can you can rejoice in that. Whoa, I'm caught in this. There's there you can you know grateful that you even notice that. And then and, and even though you're overpowering or you're 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 you know expressing someone something to someone that you don't want to be expressing or you're um, whatever it is, uh, you can you know as 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 it's happening. You know, I wouldn't try to suppress any of your natural reactions, but watch what part of you is being validated by it. What part of your identity is being validated by it. Um, You know, one of the things I once heard by another teacher is that, um, you know, when we're a great failure, our ego loves it because we're a great something. Even <laughs> you know, when, and when, we're, when we're the saddest person on the planet, it's, we're the saddest at something. You know? um, and our ego is so supportive of it. And, and I, I do uh, wedding photography. For a job, and so I get there in the summers every Saturday. I'm like in these intense environments on these intense days, and, and uh, so often, uh, you know, it's intense for me to feel it, you know, watching what I'm doing, and uh, it's so wonderful to like see it happening and, and see the part of the strings, the hooks, and how they're affecting <coughs> and just watching it. And that's all we can do is watching it, because like he's, Mark said earlier today, we don't have to stop anything. We don't have to tell ourselves about how the ball starts. It, the mind will naturally let go of these things. We just have to watch it. And, and that's all we have to do. I mean, there's a lot of other levels to it. Um, just noticing that you're caught up in it is Sorry. Thanks, Brooklyn. That's a good place to end. So let's just take a few moments and let go of the words. It's good to let go, not feel like we have to hang on to these ideas. In practice, trusting the present moment, opening, relaxing, letting things be. And then recalling that we practice not only as a powerful, beautiful way of taking care of ourselves, but it's a real gift to cultivate mindfulness, to be a cause for peace, a cause for clarity, wisdom in the world. So may all of our lives be part of the causes and conditions for real peace and freedom from suffering. And thanks everyone for coming. Nice to see you tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.